But imagine if the Supreme Court affirms the Fifth Circuit for the proposition that the social media platforms have to be viewpoint neutral in what speakers and what viewpoints are allowed on the platforms. Well, then how's the government going to engage in job owning? Right. Because you can't, you can't say take this down because it's misinformation because all you're doing is regulating, you know, taking it down based on its viewpoint. And that'll be prohibited. Right. So they have to preserve the right of the of the platforms to be able to engage in that kind of editorial discretion. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So to Speak the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. All right, folks, welcome back to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, and I'm joined here today by two of my FIRE colleagues, both of whom have been on the podcast many times. At this point, Ronnie London is FIRE's general counsel. Ronnie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nico. Welcome back, I should say. (laughs) <laughs> and Bob Corn Revere, Fire's Chief Counsel. Bob, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Nico. So we had a conversation in July while I was out on paternity leave with our VP of litigation, uh, Darpana Sheth, where we previewed that we were going to do a Supreme Court term preview for the 2023-2024 term. So this is what that podcast is. And as I believe Bob was saying before we started recording, it's going to be a blockbuster term. Uh, the number of First Amendment cases already granted uh, is numerous. And many of them deal with social media and the internet and the role that government plays in regulating or not regulating that. So let's jump right in. On Friday, we got the decision from the court that they were going to hear argument in Murthy v. Missouri. For our listeners, uh, they might be more familiar with this case as Biden v. Missouri. Missouri versus Biden. Missouri versus Biden. Thank you, Bob. Um, Which has had a kind of storied track through the courts, up from the district court to the Fifth Circuit, which kind of narrowed an injunction that the district court had issued against the government meddling in content moderation decisions that social media companies make. And Bob, you had a long opinion piece for Reason Magazine where you said that the district court opinion, which uh, placed an injunction on the federal government and the sort of communications it could have with social media co- uh, companies, was a win for the First Amendment and a loss for partisans who want to weaponize censorship. But you, it's a little bit more complicated than that, as you put in your piece. Well, it's more complicated because politics has gotten involved. And this was pitched as a case to prevent the Biden administration from meddling with social media platforms. In fact, this is something that all administrations do. The Trump administration was very active in this kind of thing, too. So rather than have the political tinge that has been... In, and most of the coverage has included this, saying this is a win for Republicans and a, a loss for, for Democrats. It really is a win for the First Amendment because it prevents whatever the administration is from trying to put their thumb on the scale when social media platforms make moderation decisions. So I want to talk about, I want to make this issue a little bit concrete. Let's talk about what the government was, in fact, doing. There was uh, about 155 pages, I believe. 155 pages, 700-some footnotes. Uh, a big record. Yeah, and, and as you say in your piece, not all of it is that concerning. Something, some of the stuff that you might expect the federal government would want to talk to social media companies about, efforts to um, spread 
false information about the election insofar as like, what is the voting day? Uh, who are the candidates right. that are available um, to vote for? When, you know, those sorts of things. Well, and in fact, even though the court, the district court issued a very broad injunction against any kind of contacts between the defendants in that case and social media platforms, it created very broad exemptions as well that were hard to interpret. And those exemptions went to things like uh, um, trying to mislead people during an election or public health information or national security information. And so it was a hard decision to interpret hard decision to apply, and it's one of the reasons why the Court of Appeals, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, when it looked at this, narrowed the scope of the injunction and tried to clarify it a bit. And when the Supreme Court took up the case, Bob, just to be clear, it stayed that injunction, right? Well, right. The Fifth Circuit had already stayed the impact or the the effective date of the injunction, and while it was in front of the Fifth Circuit, it then... Uh, there was a further uh, request for stay that was filed in the Supreme Court mm -hmm. by the Solicitor General's office. Um, and in the course of that, the Solicitor General also asked the court to take the case. So this is one of those shadow docket cases that became mm -hmm. a case that the court was, will consider on the full merits. Right, you were saying? Yeah, no, I mean, it's you know, not much in the shadows. I mean, no chance of this case being anywhere in the shadows. Um, yeah, I, I want to come back to the the staying of the injunction that was issued on Friday. So I want us to talk about that because I've got some concerns about that. Um, but yeah. to your question about, you know, the various things in the district court opinion, um, some of which are more concerning than others that the government was doing with respect to the social media platforms. You know, as, as I read through that kind of litany of, you know, various types of contacts, I had the same reaction. I mean, I would tick off, okay, this seems coercive to me. This seems like they're way too involved in the editorial selection and decision-making process. This, you know, that's probably just them saying we'd like to see something different from you as a responsible social media platform that has captured so much of the market. Can I pause um, you right there? Because I want to read some of the stuff, Bob, that you had in your piece sure. to make it concrete for folks. So one example, Bob, that you have in your reason piece, and I'm quoting from you here. Uh, Biden's then press secretary warned that there would be, quote, legal consequences if the social media companies failed to more aggressively police their platforms, suggesting this could take the form of, quote, a robust antitrust program. Rob Flaherty, uh, then Biden's director of digital strategy, was in constant contact with the social media companies demanding reports, suggesting content that he believed should be removed, and reminding the companies that his concerns were, quote, shared at the highest, and I mean highest, levels of the White House, end quote. On one occasion, when he didn't get the response he wanted from Facebook, Flaherty demanded to know, quote, are you guys fucking serious, end quote. And he added, quote, I want an answer on what happened here and I want it today, end quote. The Wall Street Journal revealed some um, communications between Facebook and the administration. I'm quoting from the Wall Street Journal here. The emails show Facebook executives discussing how they managed users' posts about the origins of a pandemic that the administration was seeking to control. Quote, can someone quickly remind me, and this is... Um, uh, from uh, Facebook personnel, can someone quickly remind me why we were removing rather than demoting labeling claims that COVID is man-made, asked Nick Clegg, the company's Facebook's president of global affairs in a July 2021 email to colleagues. Quote, we were under pressure from the administration and others to do more, responded a Facebook vice president in charge of content policy, speaking of the Biden administration. Quote, we shouldn't have done it, end quote. 
Right. I mean, there were a number of those communications that were incredibly heavy-handed and I think really over the top when it comes to coercive jawboning by the government to try and get a private platform to change its policies. And in fact, some of those com internal communications talked about how the platforms were applying decisions that were outside the range of their own moderation policies. On the other hand, the district court decision was pretty indiscriminate and swept in not just those kinds of coercive comments that you just read, yeah. but also just sort of routine contacts between uh, the social media platforms and people in government. And the First Amendment doesn't prevent people in government from talking to private speakers. And newspaper editors are used to this, right? I was going to oh, ask. And, National and security and concerns. I've seen reactions yeah. from people who have been in the newspaper business for a long time saying, what's the big deal here? Uh, governments tried to jawbone newspaper editors all the time, but there's a difference, a critical difference, two differences really. One is the First Amendment has always very clearly protected the independence of the press, uh, at least in the modern era. And the other is a tradition and a profession which values that independence. And what you have here is a blurring of those lines. And it's one of the reasons why it's important for a court to draw a strong line and to define it clearly between what are permissible government contacts and what are not permissible. Well, I'd say there's a third difference also in that, you know, you have to also look at the larger context here. I mean, you've got a, an FTC currently that is very active and does a lot of saber rattling of its own about how it liked to use the antitrust powers and other powers and even has asked Congress for additional powers to regulate social media. And that's kind of lurking in the backdrop. But another difference is you know, unlike the traditional press, um, you know, you don't you didn't have those antitrust concerns with the traditional press. So you didn't have well, you didn't have that lever, you know, at least not in modern times. Right. You didn't have that lever to pull. Um, but I, I think that, you know, there, I agree that there was some stuff, in fact, a lot of stuff in the district court opinion that might fall under the category of regular communications the government might have with social media or even with the traditional press. But I think it was important for them to be in the decision because the volume of the communications, the, the, the frequency with which it was happening, you didn't get a real flavor of that if you just you know cherry picked out all the ones that you could put a C next to for coercive or an E next to for encouragement. You really needed to get a feel of the whole gestalt of it to understand why the ones that are coercive were coercive and why they were so, well, I shouldn't say so, but much more involved in the activity of the social media platforms than the government ought be. Right. There were, there were daily contacts from multiple government offices, uh, special meetings, special avenues for communication with the social media companies. So Ronnie's right. The, the, just the volume and intensity of the communications itself was a factor in, in explaining that decision. But it's also worth remembering for some of these uh, um, public statements and the ones you read about threatening antitrust action, threatening removal of Section 230, these are precisely the kinds of threats that came out of the Trump administration as well. And so this is one of the reasons why it's so critical for the courts to draw a line between what's permissible and what's, what's impermissible. Because whichever administration we have looming in the future, if the courts give a green light to this kind of strong arming to private social media companies, uh, it's going to be very bad for free speech. I mean, people will say that when private companies make moderation decisions that people don't understand and, and can't challenge, that's bad. The only thing that's worse is if you have the government standing in the background making those decisions for them, and what and you would you turn what 
would have been decisions you could challenge in court when the government makes it into decisions you cannot challenge because it's done by a private company. And to think that you had like these meetings where government representatives were sitting at the table having conversations with the you know employees of the social media platforms about how their moderation processes should work and what they should include and what they shouldn't include it's it's almost like they were you know either clients or members of the company or whatever they're all sitting around a conference room table talking about how should this work and they're making decisions driven in part by government input and that's what the courts both the district court and the circuit court meant when they said that the government was too involved in the decision-making at the platforms. Well, how do you know when the government's too involved in the decision-making? Well, is there a court precedent on this matter? It's well, hard to believe is. this is the first time this question's come no, up. No, it isn't. And although it's been a long time since the Supreme Court has actually addressed this issue, the key precedent goes back to 1963. It's a case called Bantam Books versus Sullivan, where um, Rhode Island had set up a commission, a commission for morality and youth, that was an advisory commission where you would have them list books they thought in local bookstores that were inappropriate for for youth and then uh, once they issued that notice they would have policemen go around to bookstores and say oh by the way have you seen this list and uh, are you still carrying these books and so it was that kind of not so subtle pressure that was considered to be a form of informal prior restraint, informal censorship that was being imposed by the state. Now, the court hasn't really directly addressed that, uh, really, in, in decades. And so this is sort of a modern manifestation of that. And it's, it's an area of when is too much contact too much? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that hasn't really been all that precisely defined, even in recent cases that we've been involved with. Um, so what happened in Missouri versus Biden is a really welcome opportunity to draw some clearer lines about what is too much. And the, the Court of Appeals in particular, I think, did a good job in trying to set the parameters. First of all, when is there too much cooperation, as Ronnie pointed out, the daily meetings, the deluge of, of contacts, and in some cases, outright demands for for uh, social media companies to change their policies. Um, That sort of cooperative content where you can't tell the difference between the private decision and the public decision, that was considered to cross the line. And then the the threats, the coercive power, uh, when that was considered to be too much. So this is really a terrific opportunity in the internet age for the Supreme Court, now that it has accepted this case for review, to draw those lines and indicate when the government cannot put its thumb on the scale. There's another case that the court is considering at the moment that's in conference and it's been passed up in conferences numerous times. They've asked for more briefing on it. Uh, NRA v. Vulo, which involves uh, the superintendent of financial services, Maria T. Vulo of New York, who wrote a letter to financial services institutions in the state of New York Um, which encouraged them to more or less stop doing business with the NRA. And I'm quoting here from the last line of the letter. The department encourages regulated institutions to review any relationship they have with the NRA or similar gun promotion organizations and to take prompt actions to manage these risks and promote public health and safety. So the government here essentially saying, it's a nice financial services business you have here. It'd be a shame if something happened to it, right? Right. So these, or at least that's how it feels. Maybe I'm wrong. Right. So, the, so these were just, you know, to, to, to table set a little bit more, these were insurers who were underwriting or providing insurance for programs that 
were like sponsored by the NRA, right? So they're NRA branded insurance programs. And the problem was that according to the state that they violated state law by providing coverage, not just for accidental gun injuries and things like that, but also for intentional and criminally negligent uh, activity by gun owners, which under state law, insurance companies aren't supposed to provide insurance against. And so there was this investigation going on of Lloyds of London and a couple of other insurers. And while that was going on, you had the Parkland shooting. And so the, you know, uh, the governor comes out and the secretary comes out and they're very you know, strong. Hey, you know, we got to get this, these guns under control. And one of the things they did was they, like you said, you just read the le- from the end of the letter, they persuaded the insurers to take another look at whether they were being good corporate citizens and whether they should continue being in business with the insurance companies. But at the same time, they were you know, negotiating consent decrees with these insurers about you know, whether they could continue to do business. And one of the outcomes was that, of that was, in, and the Second Circuit in its decision that's on, up on potential review for the Supreme Court one of the things they pointed out was, well, they didn't say that they couldn't be in business with the NRA anymore. They were more than welcome to write insurance policies for the NRA itself. But what the Second Circuit kind of glossed over, in my opinion, was they did tell the insurance companies that they couldn't provide this NRA-sponsored insurance anymore. And the NRA said, you're picking on us because of our pro-gun gun rights advocacy. Yeah, and, protected speech. Yeah, and the, and the circuit court, and the district court actually issued you know, was prepared to issue an injunction and say there was no qualified immunity um, with respect to what the secretary was doing. That was appealed and the Second Circuit reversed and held that, you know, this whole case needs to be dismissed, saying this wasn't sufficient government intermeddling and this wasn't sufficiently uh, government coercive activity in response to the First Amendment activity. And I think it raises an interesting question about, you know, you mentioned this has been put to conference several times now. Uh, now that the court has granted cert in, in Murthy to take up its first job owning case in really decades, um, will it take two job owning cases at the same time or will it decide one and then use that to guide what it does with the other? You know, that's, that's a black box. Yeah, you know? I would like to see it take up the case. Yeah. And it would be in keeping with what the court has been doing both last term and this term. Uh, with taking up pairs of cases that go in different directions and then using those to shape what the law should be going forward. So let's, let's before we move on, because we've got a lot of other cases to cover, let's cover the questions presented in this, in this Murphy v. Missouri case, whether the respondents have Article Three standing, whether they have standing in this case in Murphy, we're talking about states. Uh, yeah. I believe the state of Missouri and the state of Louisiana were not talking about social media companies right. in this case. Whether the government's challenged conduct transformed private social media companies' content moderation decisions into state action and violated respondents' First Amendment rights. And three, whether the terms and breadth of the preliminary injunction are proper. Can I just get 60 seconds from both of you on what you think? Well, the first and third questions, I think, are pretty unexceptional. I mean, you will see people raise standing issues as a, a typical matter in, in cases like this. This one is, is slightly more interesting than others because there are no social media platforms that are um, in this case. Um, and then the third question about the terms of the injunction, again, that makes sense. The second question is the one that I get stuck on. Because, again, the social media platforms were not part of the decision below. The question was, how much can government actors do in pressuring these private social media companies? And neither the district court nor the court of appeals made a decision that the social media companies had become state actors 
the decisions in those cases were whether or not the government had gone too far in pressuring private actors. So they didn't become the state. They didn't become state actors. They were the victims of state pressure. Then, Ronnie, why does this question even get presented? I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, in fact, the district court and the circuit court were very careful to say that these parties aren't before us and that question is not before us. Um, you, you know, I mean, the, the law is pretty clear. I mean, for example, you take, you take the decision that uh, Judge Posner wrote in the Backpage case where Sheriff Dart, again, went to financial service companies and kind of said, hey, do you really want to be in business with this, you know, online classifieds as business that is, you know, problematic in these ways? And the court was very clear in saying it doesn't matter whether the target acquiesces to the government jawboning. The government jawboning is unconstitutional in of itself. And so to the extent that that's the case, the fact that the question presented is whether it turned the social media platforms into state actors who thereby, you know, engaged in activity that violated the First Amendment rights of the of the plaintiffs here, to me is, I agree with Bob, is a little bit beside the point. Because even if the social media platforms would have, you know, you know, stiffened their backbones and told them to go pound sand for every one of these, which would have taken a fair bit of courage given the way some of these uh, requests were worded, even if they had, the activity would have still been unconstitutional. It still would have been unconstitutional to lean on them that way. Right. And But to answer your question, Nico, the reason I think, I suspect that the uh, the question is worded that way is because it was presented by the Solicitor General, mm. right? And it, it's like the old advice that you give politicians when they're being interviewed. Don't answer the question that's asked, answer the question you'd prefer to answer. And so I think the Solicitor General presented the question in this way, uh, not so much to answer the question of when the government has to be restrained in putting pressure on private actors, but rather to put the onus on the private platforms, who by the way are not in this case, um, and say, when do their actions become unconstitutional? And so uh, I'm hoping that the court will not get distracted by this shift in the question from what was answered by the lower courts to what is being presented here, and will actually focus on when the, the Constitution limits government job owning action. Yeah, I mean, it's, some, it's, some, it's somewhat an artifact of the odd posture of this case. I mean, another thing that um, is, you know, interesting about this case, given its posture, you know, the Fifth Circuit, as Bob mentioned, significantly narrowed the, uh, the preliminary injunction that the district court ordered. I mean, there were 10 different things that the district court said that the government, that the, the federal, the federal officials that are, you know, parties to this couldn't do. The circuit court eliminated nine out of those 10. Um, and it also got rid of all of the, you know, the carve outs that Bob mentioned. Um, and if you read the decision, uh, the Fifth Circuit is, you know, very concerned about how overbroad the injunction is, how vague it is, how it doesn't put federal officials of common intelligence on notice of what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do, and how it'll chill their ability to engage as good government actors in taking positions on policies. And I, re I was reading it thinking, gosh, if only plaintiffs in First Amendment cases got that kind of solicitude when they challenge <laughs> regulations and laws as being vague and overbroad, because rarely do you see that kind of concern going the other way. So let's move on now to the well, next Well, before we do, I just want to talk very briefly. Okay, very about, briefly. Very briefly about the, uh, the stay that was entered on Friday, because basically the preliminary injunction, even as narrowed by the Fifth Circuit, 
the Supreme Court, uh, majority of the court has now stayed. You have a dissent from Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas saying, wait a minute, what are you talking about if you apply our standard stay standard, which is, you know, will there be irreparable harm pending, you know, further activity in the case? You know, what are the balance of the equities, so on and so forth? Um, they said, wait a second, where's the government showing of irreparable harm? Right. The government is saying, you know, well, if you don't stay the injunction, we might not be able to be comfortable saying this kind of thing or that kind of thing. And Justice Alito points out that that's all kind of speculative and they could always come back if there was any real problem with anything that they wanted to do that the that the injunction was going to prohibit. And this to me is an important point because, you know, when you talk about the government's interest here in being able to engage in communication with the social media platforms, that is not First Amendment at, at First Amendment protected activity. That's government speech. And it's, it's government very, power. Yeah, it's always very important to pay attention to the difference between government authority on the one hand and the exercise of rights held by individuals and entities on the other hand. And this is also a big problem in the Vulo decision because the court in the Second Circuit did a terrible job talking about the right of the secretary to be saying these things about an issue of public concern in terms of gun safety and everything else. She doesn't have a right per se. She has powers that she exercises and needs to be circumspect about exercising them in a way that doesn't infringe the rights of private entities. And so I was very, I was a little concerned about the, 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 the stay that was entered, much in the same way I was concerned and, when I read Vulo. And the point of the First Amendment is that rights trump powers, mm -hmm. right? That's a guarantee against the exercise of government power. And Justice Alito, in his dissenting statement, raised an interesting rhetorical question when he said, is there some sort of coercive activity that the government wants to engage in between now and the time we actually decide this case? Uh, and that's the only thing that's being restrained. Yeah, I really wish there had been an even a short analysis of the grant of the stay explaining the thinking behind it. Well, I don't believe oral argument has been scheduled in this case. No, yet, not yet. But. Um, I'm assuming this is one of those decisions we'll see in late June. Alito says so in his, in his dissent. Oh, does he really? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> All right, let's move now to uh, another set of controversial cases. Nest, the, the, these are the net choice cases. You have mm -hmm. net choice v. Paxton and you have Moody v. net choice. One arising out of the Fifth Circuit, net choice v. Paxton. One arising out of the Eleventh Circuit, Moody v. net choice. Um, Let's start with the Net Choice v. Paxton case, and we can kind of play the Eleventh Circuit case off of it. Um, this reg this law coming out of Texas, uh, HB 20, regulates large social media platforms, and the law purports to prohibit large social media platforms from censoring speech based on the viewpoint of the speaker. Um, it has three components. Um, one is obviously the viewpoint-based censorship restrictions, except for content that would otherwise be illegal and cites criminal activity or is unlawful. You have uh, Section 2, which requires platforms to disclose how they moderate and promote content, publish an acceptable use policy, and maintain a complaint and appeal system for their users. If I'm understanding correctly, Section 2 isn't before the court. It's, it's the viewpoint discrimination. Uh, no, Section 2 is before the court. What isn't before the court is a uh, disclosure requirement that they have to disclose their, their policies. Gotcha. So... And then you have the state of Florida bill, which is SB 7072. Uh, the legislation imposes various restrictions and obligations on social media platforms, such as prohibiting the deplatforming of political candidates and requiring detailed disclosures about content moderation policies. Uh, and it seeks to treat social media platforms like common carriers and focuses on those platforms, which have a gross annual revenue of 100 million or at least 100 million monthly individual participants. So essentially what you have here, 
for talking about kind of the societal concerns that led to uh, these laws, which is tech companies, social media pl platforms are a place where a lot of us have conversation about the issues of the day. They, uh, what they do in their content mo moderation policies has impact for the national discourse. Uh, there are a handful of them that are prominent uh, in that. In that, uh, think Twitter now X, uh, Facebook. We have TikTok, um, and that they have, according to some Republican state legislatures, um, been too eager to moderate content that would seem to be uh, mostly conservative content, conservative speech. And so this is an effort to rein that in. Um, but let's start with you, Bob. They go too far? <laughs> well, yeah, I think both state laws did go too far. And let me draw sort of a, a, a point out to show the contrast between the Murthy decision where we're talking about jawboning and these. In Murthy where you're talking about jawboning, you're talking about the Wizard of Oz saying, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The man behind the government, the curtain is the government pulling the levers of the social media companies and when the government goes too far. The, um, here we have the government acting directly to, out in the open, to impose restrictions on the decisions by private platforms. Mm. And as I said before, if you're worried about companies moderating your content in ways you don't like, uh, the only thing worse than that is having the government doing it in the background. But here, it's, I think it's quite clear. Once you recognize that these private media platforms are applying their own sort of editorial standards for what kind of community they want to create, when you have a government law that interferes with that, you are violating their First Amendment rights. Now, the Fifth Circuit disagreed with that and basically said, those companies are engaged in censorship. Well... Maybe they are, but it's not unconstitutional censorship in that the Constitution prevents government action that restricts speech. Restricting private action is very different because, for one thing, these private platforms, as big as they get, are not monopolies in the way governments are. Governments are monopolies on force, and here they're using that authority, that force, to restrict what private actors can do. The 11th Circuit, on the other hand, with the Florida law, got it right in holding that this is a restriction of the First Amendment rights of the platforms to set their own policies. Right. Yeah, and no, I don't disagree with any of that. I mean, this pr presents the fundamental question, I think, is are social media platforms publishers and private speakers, or are they something else that the government can somehow prescribe how they're allowed to, how they're allowed to act, whether they have to remain viewpoint neutral, whether they have to carry all traffic that comes to them, whether they want to or not. And I think, I think to me, the answer is fairly obvious that the, you know, first of all, the, the, the comparison is common carriers, right? Are they like the phone company? And the Fifth Circuit decision, um, even the Fifth Circuit decision, the part of the decision that talks about how they're comparable to common carriers only got one judge to sign on. So it's not even part of the majority holding. But that's the that's the analog, right, is can you force social media companies because they hold themselves out as being open to anyone who wants to use it and then they can post whatever they want and have that seen by everyone who wants to log on, can you treat them as common carriers? And I think at the end of the day, if what you're complaining about is that the social media platforms are using too much editorial discretion in what they allow to be on the platform or what they deprioritize, if that's your complaint, 
Well, then you've already answered the common carrier question, right? That's the opposite of what common carriers do. Common carriers have to have to provide non-discriminatory service to all all uh, all in the class of the uh, users of the of the service. That's the opposite of what of what social media platforms claim to be. They have terms of service that are very clear, and here are the categories of speech that some, were some more clear than others. Yeah, well, but very clear that they are going. To, there are going to be categories that they don't allow or that they're going to disallow. The categories may be unclear; they may not be well defined, but they are very clear that they are engaged in the process of making decisions about what's allowed and what's not allowed. And that's what an editor does. That's what a publisher does. They decide what they want to put forward to the for the world to see. And that's why I think the 11th Circuit gets it uh, completely correct. I mean, first of all, the Fifth Circuit decision, when the beginning of the decision starts by saying, well, let's reconsider what they said in Marbury versus Madison. You know <laughs> you're getting off on the wrong foot. And it just goes downhill for from there. For our non-legal listeners, Marbury, Marbury v. Madison, Ronnie, is. <laughs> it's, it, it's, the, it's the case that essentially established that the Supreme Court is the final arbiter of what's constitutional and what federal law means. And, you know, when a- Decided in, 200 years ago. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, you know, eight, you know it, it, more than 200 years ago now, wasn't it? I mean, um, no more. Yeah. And it was it basically was, you know, Justice Marshall writing for the court saying, look, this is what the third branch of government does. And this is how what we're empowered to do. And the decision just kind and of then goes, the decision goes on to do that thing that it was empowered to do. Right. That, but yeah. it, like it, yeah. to me, this this kind of belies an understanding of how social media companies operate. Right. Because it does. social media companies differentiate themselves based on how they moderate and deliver content, right? They um, do. That's and, how you know they're not common carriers. Yeah, no, and 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 as much as some of us might disagree on how that power is exercised or or the judgment and discretion that they leave up to themselves and and how that might have a political valence, um, that's that's what different and and so they're they're almost trying to impose a, a First Amendment standard on these social media companies, well, which we know is a very expansive standard, rightfully so. But these companies spend a lot of time taking crush videos off their platforms, taking beheading videos off these platforms, taking porn off their platforms. Now, maybe you, there are social media companies that you want to have those sorts of things, but most of these companies, and I think probably most users, don't want their timelines. And they will have different policies based on the philosophy of the company. And as when you first started talking about these cases, there were two questions that were, were raised. One was whether or not the First Amendment protects their ability to make moderation decisions. But the second was whether or not it goes too far when the government requires the social media companies to have a process for responding to complaints about how they were moderated and if they, they have to have sort of a internal review, judicial review in t inside the company. Sounds like a case that we might be familiar with. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, it, it does. And, and the problem there is these social media platforms deal with millions of posts every day. I mean, the commonly uh, cited statistic for YouTube, for example, is that 500 hours of video are posted every minute. Mm -hmm. Okay, so consider how that scales when you have to have a process for reviewing every moderation decision that a company is likely to, to have to deal with. And having that imposed by government as an obligation for private companies to make is simply an impossible burden. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the second question that the court will be looking at. There, um, Bob, to go back to the Murthy case, um, which at the time you wrote your reason piece was Missouri v. Biden, of course, you have this great line that kind of speaks to the schizophrenic nature <laughs> of uh, how these um, Republican AG offices are, are handling social media. So in that case, right, they wanted the government to take 
its thumb off the scale of social media content moderation decisions. And the Missouri Attorney General, Andrew Bailey, described uh, the district court opinion as, quote, a huge win for the right to speak freely without government censorship. Here in Texas, for example, and in Florida, they want to put their thumb on the scale of content moderation decisions. They're saying you can't moderate content. But at the same on the same day Missouri v. Biden came down in the district court level, Bailey, the Missouri Attorney General, was one of several state AGs who sent a threatening letter to Target warning that the sale of LGBTQ-themed merchandise as part of a pride campaign might violate the state's obscenity laws. So it just doesn't seem to me like they have a consistent theory of (laughs) First Amendment. Not consistent is the kindest possible way to put that. And also a position in its letter to Target that, as I wrote in the piece, would embarrass a first-year law student. Um, But it it goes deeper than that. And this is a a problem that's endemic to the political use of constitutional arguments. And that is everyone wants to enforce First Amendment rights so long as it's good for their team, but not the other team. So you see this conflict between the attorneys general in their pressure on, on target compared to how they're now arguing for the First Amendment rights of social media companies in Missouri versus Biden. Um, You also see that in a letter sent by a group of attorneys general, which included Missouri's attorney general, uh, sent to Yelp, which, and from also Attorney General Paxton in Texas, uh, arguing that uh, Yelp in its consumer reviews was not fairly describing these crisis pregnancy centers that are centers that are there to advocate against abortion. And Yelp simply wanted to designate in its... uh, um, customer reviews that these were not centers that provide abortion services and they might not have medical personnel available. Um, The AGs are now suing Yelp, arguing that this is deceptive speech. They can't really have that kind of of disclaimer uh, when they're describing what the crisis centers do. Now contrast that with the approach that California took in trying to compel these private pregnancy crisis centers to have state-mandated disclosures of... Uh, you this know, the and it's just, Yes. Yeah. And so both sides, the uh, conservatives, the liberals, they're all trying to bend the First Amendment to their will and serve their own policy objectives, when in fact, as FIRE stands for the proposition that the First Amendment uh, doesn't take sides and that both of them, when they're trying to use state power to either compel people to speak or prevent them from speaking, uh, they're crossing the line. Well, in the same way you have, you know, I feel like we've been talking about the Netflix cases for like 10 years. Um, it's probably, the the it's, Netflix cases? I'm sorry, the Net Choice cases. Oh, okay. Sorry, the Net Choice cases. <laughs> um, for, 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 for years. It's been a few years uh, that we've been mm-hmm. talking about it as they've been matriculating through the courts. But, you know, you have the Solicitor General's office in the Net, Net Choice cases saying, oh, no, you know, the court needs to review. And this is one of the reasons that the, 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 the cases weren't heard last term, is that they waited for the Solicitor General to weigh in and then uh, ultimately decided to grant cert. I mean, there's a pretty clear circuit split. Um, but the Solicitor General came in and said, you know, the 11th Circuit kind of got it right and the 5th Circuit kind of got it wrong and the government shouldn't be dictating what whether or not the social media platform should be uh, viewpoint neutral. At the same time, they're litigating in... In, um, in in Louisiana saying, well, but we can kind of go behind the scenes and tell them what they should leave up and what they should take down, and that's okay. And now they've got this cert petition before the court uh, saying, hey, you got to relieve us of the obligations of this preliminary injunction to, to keep our thumb off the scale. And, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's whatever's politically uh, 
whatever has expedient. political utility at the time. Yeah. yeah. And we should say for our listeners who aren't familiar with NetChoice, it's a trade group for internet technology companies, often social Correct. media companies. Um, I don't believe every social media company is a member of the trade group, but many of them are. I, I don't. The think major ones are. Yeah. yeah. Um, where do you think the court will come down on, on this one? Did they? So the Texas passed the law in the Fifth Circuit. You know, affirmed it, right? More or less. And 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 so has it gone into effect, or was it stayed by the? No, Supreme it's been court? stayed. But let let let's by take, agreement of the parties. Let, okay. Let's take them in turn. The Solicitor General's office, um, in its brief to the court, um, said that the court should uphold um, the Eleventh Circuit decision striking down the Florida law and should reverse the Fifth Circuit, which upheld the, the Texas law. I know that's getting <laughs> confusing, talking <laughs> yeah. about different cases going different ways. The point is they're saying that the First Amendment should protect the social media platforms. Now that's really significant for a variety of reasons, among which that the Solicitor General's office, both in this term Supreme Court cases and in the cases that are presented for the coming term, has been hugely influential. It has filed briefs in the cases, advocating various positions. It has asked for and received argument time in the major cases. Um, and in many instances, the court will take those views and incorporate them into the decisions, such as the counterman decision from last term, which we may get to. Um, and so if that trend holds true, we will see how that plays out in the social media platform decisions and perhaps explore some of those tensions that Ronnie just mentioned, where you have the Solicitor General's office saying, yes, social media platforms have First Amendment rights, but not when it comes to jawboning. Well, <laughs> you, you know, know why that's partly necessary. So imagine if this court, and I don't, and I hope and don't, th I don't think and I hope that the Supreme Court won't affirm the Fifth Circuit, but imagine if the Supreme Court affirms the Fifth Circuit for the proposition that the social media platforms have to be viewpoint neutral in what speakers and what viewpoints are allowed on the platforms, well, then how's the government going to engage in jawboning, right? Because you can't, you can't say, take this down because it's misinformation because all you're doing is regulating, you know, taking it down based on its viewpoint. And that'll be prohibited, right? So they have to preserve the right of the, of the platforms to be able to engage in that kind of editorial discretion. That's our social media clip right there, Sam. Yeah. But if you get, if you get down to it, I remain optimistic that the court given its strong First Amendment track record, is going to uphold the First Amendment rights of social media platforms. I am hoping that when that comes to jawboning, it will get refocused on the actual question before the court and not the one that the Solicitor General tried to tweak out of it. Uh, and I'm also uh, hopeful that the Supreme Court will deal with how public officials use their social media platforms in, in uh, applying First Amendment standards. Yeah. Well, the, the, that gets us on to the next set of cases. But before I say that, if the Supreme Court affirms the Fifth Circuit, I don't know how these social media companies operate. Like, I just don't know how you have a social media company. Well, even just having to evaluate appeals from your moderation decisions, um, I don't know physically how that could be done. Well, never mind that. How do you, if you if you want to run a social media platform that doesn't allow hate speech, whatever that happens to be, or doesn't allow pornography, however you define that, how do you make those decisions and square it with the Supreme Court having told us a few terms back that giving offense is a viewpoint, that saying things like fucked is F-U-C-T as a trademark, 
you know, is if you prohibit it, it's a viewpoint discrimination. If you take that away, um, they have to basically it has to, anything goes. Yeah, I mean, it seems like for as much ink has been spilled on how the court doesn't understand technology, my understanding is they have kind of looked at the 230 question too and and, and sort of gestured and understood that well, to, to get rid of 230 would be to break the internet. I actually think that's more that they understand that they don't understand technology. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm, I've been encouraged by that as well. And this last term, the Supreme Court, much in the style that is we've seen in the coming term, accepted two cases for review that explored that question. Mm -hmm. And this raised the question of Section 230 directly. Section 230 is that provision of the Communications Decency Act that provides, among other things, immunity for uh, platforms that carry third-party speech, it says that they're not, uh, they're immunized from cases trying to hold them responsible, most cases for trying to hold them responsible so for that speech. comments on social media, right. videos you upload to YouTube, things and like that. Certainly, Justice Thomas has been a strong critic of Section 230, saying that it needs to be reconsidered. Justice Gorsuch has also written along those lines. And so there was a lot of concern that um, the Internet could, in fact, be broken uh, if the Supreme Court were to undermine Section 230. It considered two cases last term to look at that, one actually looking at what kinds of actions by a social media platform could make it responsible for third-party speech, whether or not that constituted aiding and abetting. And in an opinion, a unanimous opinion, written by Justice Thomas, this is the uh, the Tomna case. Yeah, the Twitter uh, Tomna. Yeah. Um, held that uh, this was not sufficient. It would be like holding the phone company responsible for people having conversations on the phone company. And he pointed out, as proponents of Section 230 often do, the millions and in some cases billions of communications that are at issue and how it would be impos an impossible burden if social media platforms or in this case, even just internet platforms, were held responsible for that kind of third-party speech. Now, that makes me somewhat optimistic. Especially that Justice at least, Thomas. At least, you know, certainly Justice Thomas, who's been the biggest critic yeah. of Section 230, for him to apply that insight in saying that internet platforms are not going to be held responsible unless you have direct evidence of how they've been actively involved in promoting the kinds of crimes that are the subject of that speech. Um, you know, that means I think the court is, even its most severe critics of Section 230, the court is sensitive to how their actions could undermine what we understand and use on a daily basis to be the public internet. Well, I think we might start seeing a little bit of what happens when you lose 230 protection, because in Europe right now, they have the Digital Services Act. And, and my understanding is that after 230 was passed, Europe kind of had a similar law put in place, but the Digital Services Act would roll that back and um, take back some of that immunity granted to uh, internet service providers relating to third-party content. And you're even seeing companies right now, for example, like X, Elon Musk says they're considering leaving Europe as a result of this. Which does raise the question, why is it that Europe has no huge internet companies as the United States does? Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's move now to the social media blocking cases. We have two of them that the court has uh, agreed to hear. Another one of your pairings. Yeah, yes. right? Yeah. So we have O'Connor... Ratcliffe v. Garnier. Uh, this involves Christopher and Kimber Kimberly Garnier, who are parents of children in the Poway Unified School District in the city of Poway, California, which is just north of San Diego. They're critics of the, the school district and the, and the district's board of trustees. And the trustees began to hide or delete critical comments or often repetitive comments from the Garniers. And then uh, around 
2017, they blocked them from their social media pages entirely. Uh, we also have Lynn Kivy Freed. Um, in 2014, James Freed uh, was appointed to the, as city manager of Port Huron. He had previously had a private kind of personal social media account, um, but he had gone on to update his Facebook page to reflect his new title as the city manager. And on his page, he shared both personal updates about himself and his family and professional uh, updates. And then Kevin Linke, in this case, came across Freed's page and did not approve of how uh, Mr. Freed was handling the pandemic. He posted criticism of Freed in response to Freed's Facebook page and Freed deleted the comments and ultimately blocked Linke. And so the question for the court is, right, you know, if you have public officials blocking constituent comments on their accounts, it, is this unconstitutional? When does a public official's social media activity constitute state action subject to the First Amendment? That's right. As I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the whole question is whether or not you've got government action involved versus private action. And here you have public officials who are using their private accounts for public purposes. And how much of that public purpose converts what they do into government action? And by extension, when does that mean they have a less ability to censor the communications they get from their constituents? This isn't a new issue. I mean, this is an issue that came up when President Trump, former President Trump, used his Twitter account for basically conducting much of his public business. He famously. Used it for, <laughs> very famously. He used it to make, for making public announcements. He used it for uh, criticizing opponents. Uh, he used it for actually conducting business. And the question came up of whether or not he could silence his critics who would post on Twitter. Uh, the Second Circuit, in a decision, um, said that his use of it converted the public comment area as a public forum, mm -hmm. and so that the First Amendment did limit what he did. But he left office before the Supreme Court had a chance to look at this question. And so the Second Circuit decision was vacated. Now this coming term, we have... As moot. I mean, yeah, it was vacated as moot uh, because uh, uh, the president had left office. Um, now we have public officials at lower levels who are conducting the same kinds of public business, maybe not to the same extent as former President Trump did, but still doing so. And the question is, what about their use of these private platforms constitutes state action? Two circuits have reached completely contrary decisions on this. The Ninth Circuit has said, much like the Second Circuit did in the Trump case, has said that you look at the totality of circumstances, you look at all of the range of factors that um, constitutes public use and determine whether or not that is actually conducting public business online. And, and if it is, it limits their ability to silence their critics. So if, so if James Freed in this case had just used his Facebook account for personal. Well, no, actually, that's a Sixth Circuit case. That's the Sixth Circuit. That used a different test entirely. You want to keep going? Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, so, this, so that's, you know, so Bob said two different circuits came out two different ways. So the Ninth Circuit case is the former case that you mentioned. The yeah, Sixth Christopher Circuit, and Kimberly yeah. Garnier. Yeah, the Sixth Circuit case is the Freed case. And this was the one where um, the Facebook uh, account was used largely for personal business until he became a government employee, and he just kind of folded in his that aspect of his life into his continuing use of the Facebook page um, while continuing to use it for his personal business. But James Freed also, his, his, his Facebook account was initially just for personal use that's as right. well. That's right, right. And that's, what, that, and that's what I was saying. Yeah. And, and so, but the Sixth Circuit 
took a different tack. The Sixth Circuit uh, used a, what they, I think they called a government nexus test. And the question was, um, by using your social media uh, account uh, in a way that is a result of your having government power. Actual or apparent yeah. government authority. Actual that is, apparent, yeah, go, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, which means essentially government authority. Yeah. I mean, if it's actual, that means the government has set up the account for you, it runs the account, it funds the account. It, you, you might have public employees who are conducting the business on it, uh, or the apparent authority, which is very close to that. I mean, it, there's really no difference between um, you know, the government opening up a website, which would be subject to constitutional mm -hmm. rules. Uh, the question here is whether or not um, anything short of that would, um, would constitute state action. Now, one way to understand that is that Virtually every member of Cong Congress conducts public business through their private accounts. They also have public accounts, yeah. but their private accounts constitute much more of the traffic that they get. President Biden has a private account that he uses as President of the United States, as well as a public White House-generated account. Well, and that's one has, of the distinctions. He has six million more subscribers for his personal account yeah. than he does, or at least... Because that's built up over the years before he, you know... Exactly. And so much more of the government activity takes place on these private accounts. And the question is, are you going to insulate that from any kind of constitutional rules? Mm -hmm. Or is the court going to draw a line that gives public officials sort of a blueprint for silencing their so, so is this a petition question? Is this a forum question? How, how do you it's think both. about it? It's both. It, yeah. It's both. It, it, it raises the question of when the government has created a public forum, which requires it to play by certain constitutional rules. And it also involves the right to petition in that the constituents of these public officials, the question is whether or not they have a right to weigh in on various uh, uh, government, uh, government actions as presented on these private platforms. Um, and, you know, it, it's really a question of whether or not with public service comes the responsibility to hear your critics. Yeah. And here you have public officials in the O'Connor Ratcliffe case and in the Linke case who simply didn't want to hear it. And so they started silencing both particular posts by their critics and canceling them from being able to participate in, in certain cases. Ronnie, did you have any last thoughts on this case? No, although I do think that even under the Ninth Circuit's test, if you applied it instead of the Sixth Circuit's test to Freed, I think that case still comes out the same way. Because I, because if you if you read the Sixth Circuit's description of how he used the account, it really wasn't to conduct public business per se. Um, it was largely you know a personal Facebook account where he was doing stuff relating to his family, relating to his you know his personal life. And yes, part of my life is that I have this city position. And you know, I went here, I went there, but he wasn't using it to engage with his constituents the way that the government officials in the Ninth Circuit case. Did. I tend to disagree with that. I, I think that it could, you can you can argue that it's a close call, but in this case, he was the city manager of Port Huron, Michigan. He listed his all of his official contact information on that. He had a certain number of followers that uh, he had listed as a private account, and then. Uh, once he became city manager, there were more people than would, would be handled under that category. So he went to 
public figure page. Yes. Public figure page. Right. Um, he also did conduct announcements on COVID policies and all of that uh, through his, his private account. I think you can make a very strong argument that this was the exercise of uh, official business and official power through his private account, and he simply, by using it in this way, uh, was subject to the state So the use is the important question here. Yes, There's no right. argument, for example, that James Freed needs to open up all his social media accounts no. because no. what he does in his personal time has, is of interest to By citizens. the way, he has complete ability to separate his private account from the one on which he conducts public business. And one of the reasons why the Sixth Circuit reached this more restrictive test is it said, we really need a bright line this nexus approach of, you know, all the totality of circumstances is a little too slippery. Well, the state action question has always been a totality of the circumstances test. You have to look at all of the factors. But if you really want a bright line, the one that the Sixth Circuit drew in saying it has to be this actual or apparent authority test means that you're, what you're doing is creating a blueprint for public officials to silence their critics. So it's a bright line, but not in a good way. All right, let's move on now to uh, Vidal v. Elster, <clears throat> which is a case involving Steve Elster, who attempted to register the phrase Trump too small. Uh, to what could that on possibly mean? <laughs> put it on various types of shirts. Um, he, meant, he, he, he wanted to register the mark to serve as political commentary on President Donald Trump. Uh, this was back in 2018 when President Donald Trump was still president, and the Patent and Trademark Office rejected the application, um, citing two sections of the Lanham Act, Section 2C, which prohibits registering a mark that identifies a living individual without their consent, and Section 2A, which bars marks that falsely suggest a connection with living or dead persons. Layperson right here, can you register a mark for an individual without their well, consent? Oh, without their consent. Um, <laughs> well, um, wouldn't that be the threshold question here? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting case because you know this was an application that was filed as intent to use, not actual use. So before the application was made, there w it wasn't like there was you know uh, t-shirts out there with Trump too small on it, and it had acquired a secondary meaning, identifying the applicant as the uh, source of the goods, because that's what a trademark ultimately is, right? It's, it's, it's an identifier of the source of the goods. Um, and so, I mean, you can, you can register someone's name. Um, and in fact, there's a whole body of case law about when somebody uses uh, their own personal name as part of their business and it acquires a secondary meaning and what rights you have and whether you can bump somebody off of your name. But this is a case really about when you want to register a mark and in doing so, convey some kind of political message and the person in question is a public official, whether or not the trademark office can stop you from registering it and protecting that commentary as a mark, designating you as the originator of the good or service with that message on it. And so what it ultimately comes down to is because of the consent requirement that you mentioned, it becomes a viewpoint discriminatory. You cannot standard. register a, right. a mark if it has political commentary about an individual. Right, because who's, because because who's, who's going to consent grant to the that. criticism? Exactly. Right. Right. Now, there's a, a broader First Amendment question about whether or not uh, you should be able to, in registering that mark, prevent others from being able to use it. 
mm-hmm. right? Because you've got this broader political purpose. But that's not the question that the court is focused on here. It's really just whether or not the trademark office was uh, violating the Constitution when it refused to accept this mark without uh, Trump's consent. I'm trying to think of a phrase that's taken on political valence and in, in, in the culture. I think thanks Obama might let's, be one. Let's you go remember? Brandon. Let's go Brandon, you know. Um, although it doesn't use Joe Biden's name, it's implied yeah. <laughs> that, Bi- that Brandon is Biden. Uh, thanks Obama, which was an internet meme for a while. Uh, let's say it was originated by some online internet store. Could they uh, register the mark? There, I think there, many of our listeners will just kind of be rubbed the wrong way by the idea that perhaps you can trademark someone else's name, even if it's for political commentary. I can, I can, I can understand that. But then again, if you know, you're, you're allowed to make t-shirts, political t-shirts, and then to not be able to make money off of things that become very popular, like Let's Go Brandon or, or Thanks Obama, because anyone else could then make those shirts because it's about um, a public figure and they didn't grant you their consent right. to well, that phrase. There, there's a broader question about what it means to to uh, register a trademark and that is it doesn't prevent you from using that phrase or using that shirt right you can present the or you can produce the thanks Obama t-shirts if you want to the question is whether or not if you try and register a trademark for it you get the protections provided by the trademark act which means the presumption that your mark is valid the ability to file suit based on Mm -hmm. protecting your trademark those are the kinds of benefits that come with trademark registration and so and, and that's the central question that's presented here whether or not this is a restriction on speech or whether or not it's simply a condition of getting a government benefit. It's a question that the court has addressed multiple times now in the past. Uh, you might remember the case involving the slants, uh, yeah. right? Mattel versus Tam, where the same argument was made yeah. by the government saying that, um, you know, having the ability to use this disparaging trademark, um, whether or not that's a restriction on speech or simply a condition on a government benefit. Now, twice the court has rejected that argument. Uh, in the Brunetti case and in the Tam case. And so now it's coming back in this case, but on a different provision of the Trademark Act. Yeah, and the solicitor is making that argument, right? The the government is making that argument that it's not an infringement on speech. But I I, I tend to think that ship sailed with Brunetti and with Tam. And that's actually one of the most important parts of Tam. I mean, Tam is a, a critically important First Amendment case, partly because it talks about what it means to be a viewpoint discriminatory. And that is even something like giving offense can be a viewpoint. But there's another aspect of Mattel versus Tam that you know Bob just touched on implicitly. And that is it, a government re- uh, regulation doesn't have to necessarily um, prohibit speech or stop you from speaking in the way that you want to, even if it simply disfavors the speech by putting it at some kind of disadvantage. Mattel versus Tam stands for that proposition. And again, I think I think that ship has sailed. I'd like to believe that I mean, ship Mattel has sailed. Mattel and Tam de- dealt with a viewpoint, though, in a certain sense. Here we're just we're talking well, about well, a but viewpoint the, neutral. But, but, but so, the threshold so question does. is, is it a regulation of speech, right? Before you well, get yes, to, is it a viewpoint? certainly is. Well, but, that, but that's the question here, right? The, the government is arguing, even now still in Elster, that the refusal to register a trademark is not a regulation of speech. 
or an infringement of speech. So you don't even get to, if that's the right answer, you don't even get to the viewpoint discriminatory question because you're not regulating speech. And that's why I was saying that Mattel versus Tam is such an important case for recognizing that even the disfavoring by not registering the trademark is sufficient government action uh, antagonistic to speech that it's a First Amendment violation. Hmm. See, I, I think it's obviously speech. You're talking about registering a mark of someone's name. You cannot say that name or you can not get the benefits of trademark protection from saying that name. But it doesn't seem uh, viewpoint discriminatory to me in the same way that Mattal v. Tam did when you're talking about um, pejorative or, or uh, derogatory words and phrases. It's content neutral or it's viewpoint neutral in that sense. It's just you can't register someone else's Well, And if name. I recall correctly, the court didn't accept for review the question of whether or not this is a viewpoint discrimination. That's right. Uh, it just uh, accepted the question of whether or not this was a limitation on speech. Mm. Now, whether something discriminates based on viewpoint uh, dictates what level of scrutiny yeah. uh, the court is going to provide. And, and uh, the First Amendment is exceptionally hostile to viewpoint-based regulations of speech. But there's no question that this is a restriction on speech. Yeah. The question is whether or not the Solicitor General is right in framing this as merely a benefit or whether or not it actually has a negative impact on the ability to speak. And I think part of what is giving some folks discomfort is that this re this particular mark, it's, it's a word mark registration. And what that means is it's a registration to protect Trump too small, no matter what font, what color, what style it's represented oh, yeah. in, right? Whereas... If, for example, the mark might have been in, you know, stylized green script, for lack of Let's a better. Let's say a Jack Daniels bottle. <laughs> well, well but, um, but, it, but, it, but it was a mark that was limited to, you could have, you could use Trump too small as a phrase without infringing the mark. If it had been not a word, word mark application, you could, do, so long as you didn't put it in script and you didn't put it in green, you'd be able to use the phrase. But I think some of this comfort is coming from the fact that this is a wordmark application, which means the phrase, no matter how written or presented, yeah. which, gets the, would get the protection. Which is why lurking in the background are much broader First Amendment questions of whether or not there should be the ability to have a trademark like this that can limit speech generally. But the only question that's being presented here is whether or not this applicant can be prevented from registering this mark because of the consent issue. That's right. Yeah. Let's move on to our last case now, which is Gonzalez v. Trevino, also granted very recently on October 12th, uh, involves a woman, Sylvia Gonzalez, who's a 72-year-old first-time city council member in uh, Castle Hills, Texas. Uh, she was arrested because police in that city didn't like that she was advocating for the removal of the city manager. Uh, an ally of the police. Well, she wasn't. She was arrested, but the reasons why she was arrested is what's at issue in this case, right? Um, she had organized a petition for the removal of the city city manager that she then misplaced. Well, that um, was her platform. That was the platform she ran on. That she was going to present this petition. At, right. at, yeah. So that was her platform as a city council member that she was going to present this petition to remove the city manager. Well, she lost the petition. Well, she didn't lose it. I mean, what, what's Everyone interesting here <laughs> is that this was at a city council meeting where, where, where the petition was presented. And there was a heated meeting. It was going to be convened, hold over to the next day. And on the platform where the 
uh, city manager and the council members were seated, there were a bunch of papers, and she apparently just picked it up with the papers and put it in her folder. And before the meeting was over, um, a policeman came over to her and said, the city manager wants to talk to you. And he asked her, where's the petition? And look in your folder. And so she looks and he goes, they, they both agree. Well, I must have picked it up by mistake. And she gives it to him. So if it was misplaced, it was mis misplaced for a matter of minutes at yeah. most. And because this was not a popular petition with the city manager, as you might imagine, uh, later on, she is arrested. And he first starts an investigation into the missing petition when he two knew months. exactly. Two months. Yeah, for two months he was investigating this and, and then appoints a friend to be a special investigator uh, to look into this. Um, she's eventually arrested and arrested under conditions where she has to actually spend time behind bars. And ultimately, when it finally gets to the prosecutor, the prosecutor looks at these facts and says, this is ridiculous, and drops the case. And she was arrested well, under a yeah. tampering law, right? That's right. hardly exactly. ever used, and if it is, it's usually exactly. invoked in the cases of fake IDs. Well, it's hardly ever used in this context. Yeah, in fact, usually they, fake IDs. In fact, they yeah. presented to the court that they couldn't find any case where this law had been applied and enforced again in this kind of to, situation. To someone, to someone who had simply put the petition momentarily in the wrong folder. Now... The issue that the court is being asked to address is whether or not to revisit a rule that it announced a few terms ago in Nieves versus Bartlett, which is a case saying that uh, you cannot bring a First Amendment retaliation case if the police have probable cause to arrest you. You can't uh, sue on that behalf unless you can show that there are people who have done the same activity and were not arrested. For example, people are protesting, they only arrest for jaywalking, the people who are protesting, but others who are jaywalking who are not protesting. You've got to have these comparables. Yeah. And that was the holding in Nieves versus Bartlett. This is the first opportunity for the court to revisit that rule and ask whether or not it's too restrictive. And here the question is whether or not if you have objective evidence that shows that there was a retaliatory purpose, even if there were no other differences in prosecution. Can you still bring a retaliation case? I think the answer has to be yes, that you can sue for retaliation when you have facts this stark that show that there was an abusive purpose behind the retaliation. The Fifth Circuit held that the exception did not apply to Sylvia Gonzalez in this case because she had not shown comparative evidence of similarly situated individuals who had also mishandled a government petition but held different views and were not prosecuted under the same law. So essentially she needed to be able to show that someone like her had started a petition to praise the city manager right. and had mis misplaced it and then yeah. was prosecuted. It seems well, like a set of facts that you well, can never well, write. It's well, a very right. strict and narrow reading of the Nieves exception. Yeah, and this is kind of like a qualified immunity defense but on steroids, mm -hmm. right? In qualified immunity, you've got to show that the law is clearly established based on similar circumstances, right? And only then can you have a local official being held responsible, or uh, it can be a federal official too, but being held responsible because the law is clear. Here, you're saying that to be able to even bring a First Amendment case, you've got to show the exact same circumstances and differential treatment, which is a ridiculously high bar. I mean, it's a bar I don't, I mean, I guess you, theoretically you can meet it, right? Um, yeah, but. but it would be a welcome opportunity for the court to clarify this area and hopefully to relax the the rule that it announced in Nieves versus Bartlett. Yeah, I mean, there was a case a little while back 
where I think someone got arrested for something like uh, recording in the hallway of a courthouse. And the rule was no recording in courthouses or something. But everybody was recording, but only this one person was arrested because they were writing things that were unflattering. I forget the exact facts, but that's the kind of thing you would have to show. You would have to have that stark of an, ev of an evidentiary basis before you could proceed. And that's an awfully crabbed reading of that exception. So to close up here, I'd got, like to get your holistic view on the court taking up all these cases. And, and to be clear, the court could take up more First Amendment cases uh, mm -hmm. this term. But what, what do we got here? We got five different buckets of cases, um, two of, you know, I'm, I'm looping in Murthy, uh, I'm looping in Net Choice v. Paxson and Moody v. Net Choice there and O'Connor, Ratcliffe and Lindkey. Um, a lot of First Amendment cases. And it's often said of the Roberts court that this is a court that is very speech protective, um, maybe most speech protective in the history of the court as, as far as uh, the First Amendment's concerned. You, know, you could imagine a different era when we, we would be less thrilled that the court is taking up these cases, at least within fire. Um, what, what's your sense of how these will shake out generally? Well, as, as, as I said earlier, I remain optimistic, and I, I am so generally towards the Roberts Court, although keep in mind that people view the court differently based on their political perspectives. Mm -hmm. uh, some people will say, oh, this is an awful court because, you know, I have a different political outlook than the court. Other Campaign people, finance, you see. Yeah. yeah you, you know, pick your favorite issue and however. Religious speech. Uh, but in terms of, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think in terms of the basic First Amendment law, the court has been really uh, speech protective. I think this past term, uh, we haven't really talked about those cases, but the cases from the past term, while you can quibble with different uh, aspects of the decisions, generally very speech protective and moving in the right direction. Um, I'm hopeful, notwithstanding the views of the Solicitor General, that the court is going to get the social media cases right. And if it does that, then it will have accomplished a lot in First Amendment terms. Yeah, right. I think that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, even if you wanted to, you know, for example, looking at the last term, you wanted to, uh, you know, criticize the cases that arguably didn't go the First Amendment's way. I mean, I mean, Jack Daniels, for example, the court, I guess, could have, you know, expanded the test that the Circuit Second, Second Circuit adopted for looking at the First Amendment usage of a mark at threshold rather than as part of the likelihood of confusion analysis. I mean, I think they said, look, all they were saying is if you are using a mark as a designation of origin, right, as a designation, then you get you have to do the likelihood of confusion analysis first. Um, and, you know, Hansen, you know, I think that I would have preferred Hansen to go differently. Um, but to the extent that it read promoting and facilitating in criminal statutes as the equivalent of aiding and abetting, at least they narrowed them somewhat. To, to provide just a yeah. bit of a little background for the Hansen case. This was a case interpreting the Immigration and Nationality Act and whether or not uh, encouraging someone to stay in the country illegally, uh, encouraging or inducing someone to stay in the country illegally, um, was a criminal prohibition that satisfied First Amendment terms, or if it extended beyond criminal speech, aiding and abetting someone illegally, uh, and uh, whether or not it, it reached First Amendment protected activity of like political uh, promotion of uh, encouraging people. Um, the court held, while it didn't uphold the First Amendment claim against the act itself, it did say that it had to be interpreted very narrowly so that it only reached speech that was actually integral to criminal activity. So 
it didn't uphold the First Amendment claim, but it interpreted the statute in a narrow way so that it is more speech protective than it would have been if it had simply said, ah, this is close enough for government work. So yeah, bottom line, it's been a fairly speech protective court. Yeah, I mean, the thing that strikes me about this term in particular is how many of these cases are blockbuster cases. You know, last, last term you had a lot of kind of in the weeds legal questions aside from maybe 303 Creative, <laughs> yeah. which you know was a headline capturing kind of, you could describe it as a culture war case. Here you have Murphy v. Missouri, the net choice cases, even the social media blocking cases, which you know are on their own would make this a very significant term, but they're all coming in the same year. I've been practicing First Amendment law for 40 years. One of my principal areas of focus has been the application of First Amendment to new technologies. Mm -hmm. I have never seen a Supreme Court term that is consequential as this one is going to be. Well, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a fun review podcast that we do next July, I'm assuming, when we take a look back at the 2023-2024 term. And um, you know, from Fire's perspective, I hope you you are right that this court remains uh, First Amendment protective. And for our listeners uh, back home. Remind you that this podcast is hosted by me, Nico Perino, and produced by Sam Niederholzer and myself. Um, it's recorded <laughs> by Tyler McQueen and Sam, who are standing behind the cameras over here. And it's edited by my colleagues, Aaron Reese and Ella Ross. You can learn more about So To Speak by subscribing to our YouTube channel, where we'll have videos of this conversation, uh, along with show notes. If you want to take a look at these cases, most of our episodes are up on that YouTube channel. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram by searching for Free Speech Talk. Uh, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. So if you're a longtime listener, please consider leaving a review. And until next time, thanks again for listening. <laughs>